Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is November 17th, 2021, and it is National Butter Day. It's also National Homemade Bread Day, and I'm pretty sure that those two stories might be related. Just like some of the stories that we are going to be bringing you on this episode of the Rundown, uh, we've got a packed lineup about some exciting news that has been released since it's been a busy week for some of our um, sources. Uh, but one of the greatest sources of news, whether it comes to any technology out there, is, of course, my co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, how are you this week? I'm pretty good. I have spent the week following the news out of the big supercomputer show, as you are going to hear during this uh, week, this week's episode of The Rundown. And of course, it's been exciting to uh, get all the videos posted from Cloud Field Day. Yeah, it's been a busy week, but we spent a little bit of time going over some of the announcements and we wanted to make sure that we have the opportunity to bring them to you. And we are going to kick off actually with a supercomputing announcement because the fast computers, the fastest ones on the planet, just keep getting faster. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but we are officially in the exascale era because according to the top 500 supercomputer annual rankings, the Japanese Fugaku held on to the top spot once again the 442 petaflops per second benchmark score sounds pretty impressive. It's even more impressive when you realize they're three times faster than their nearest competitor. Now, that sounds pretty good. But just like anything that has a ludicrous speed, they were able to get the thing to go even faster. So whenever they were using it in further reduced precision or single instruction tests, which are the kinds of things that you would typically see in an AI or an ML workload, they were able to accelerate that score to just over 1,000 petaflops per second. And if you know your metric system, that's an exaflop. That is a lot. Now, what do we talk about with everybody who wasn't number one? Well, Places two through nine didn't actually change this year. So the, the top rankings are pretty well set. But number 10 was a bit of a surprise because the Azure-based Voyager EUS2 system finally managed to crack into the top 10. Now, Stephen, you know a lot about these really, really big metric prefixes because of storage. But what does the exaflop era mean for people out there who are looking to do some big number crunching? So thanks a lot, Tom. I, as you know, uh, fast computers are really my bread and butter. And so uh, when I was looking at supercomputing, the thing that I was focused on was actually how this impacts the data center market. What you mentioned is absolutely true, that we are finally in the uh, petaflop era and that uh, we do have a cloud computer sort of in the top 10, which is pretty fantastic. But from my perspective, when I was looking at these results, the thing that I'm honing in on is, of course, the big epic battle that's going on in the data center right now between our friends ARM, AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel. And here's the TLDR on that. So point number one, looking at the list, you will notice first that there are no new ARM systems on the list. Full stop, we're done, no ARM. Um, there are ARM systems in the list, but there's no new ones. So nobody uh, built a new top 500 supercomputer with ARM CPUs. That might surprise you, given all the news coming out about ARM and NVIDIA's attempted acquisition, which we're going to talk about later, and of course, Apple's amazing ARM-based M1 processors, uh, but they're not in, in supercomputing, uh, at least as strongly as they were. 
The next thing you'll notice is that AMD is killing it this year. So 40% of the new computers on the list in the top 500 list. Now this is quite a few computers. 40% of them are powered by AMD, not Intel. And that means that AMD now provides 15% of all of the computers, uh, the CPUs for all the computers on the top 500 list, which is a big, big move for AMD, uh, including all five of the new top 20 servers. So in other words, the, the, the top 20 supercomputers that are appearing on this list are AMD provide, uh, AMD based. Finally, NVIDIA also dominates this list. So five of the largest new systems uh, all use NVIDIA processors uh, as, as uh, co-processing. And that means that NVIDIA is now found in 143 of the top 500 supercomputers because not all of them use a coprocessor. Many of them are just CPU based. Now this might make you say, wow, pour one out for poor Intel. But here's the thing. Intel is actually looking really strong for next year. So I think that what we're gonna see is next year, we're gonna see a much more interesting list because there are a few really massive systems coming on online, including a few exascale systems that are rumored to be coming online and maybe even a 10 exa system in China. So we'll see how that, uh, how that works. Um, but the, 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 the point is uh, Intel is really heavily moving in there. Um, so despite what it may look like with AMD and NVIDIA dominating the news, uh, next year might be a different story. So Tom, uh, moving back to uh, you know, your uh, favorite uh, condiment here, uh, if you got an email from the FBI about a botnet on your forehead, you might realize it was a hoax. Uh, several people got the email and it wasn't so apparent. A hacker going by the handle of Pom Pom Purin, nice Pokemon reference there, folks, uh, got in to the Law Enforcement Enterprise Portal, or LEAP, through a vulnerable one-time passcode and uh, was able to use this system to send a massive number of emails with headers showing they came from a legitimate FBI server. The FBI quickly issued a statement denouncing the emails and assuring users that they would patch the hole and would never, never send such goofy emails themselves. Uh, what do you think, Tom? Uh, what do you think about the FBI uh, computers being used by hackers? Well, I really appreciate all the work that Pom Pom Purin put in when he was doing the reconnaissance, you know, because that allowed him to look before he leaped. And that will be my one big pun for the week. Uh, but no, this was kind of amusing because um, the way that we were notified that this happened was actually the email that the hacker sent to Brian Krebs. And I kid you not, he said, you have a botnet on your forehead, but you also want to check the headers of this email message because it really did come from the FBI. And sure enough, when Krebs took a look at it, he went, holy crap, it did. Which, by the way, will then trigger the second most scary phrase that any information security department can ever hear. We have Brian Krebs on line two asking for a comment. So um, what happened basically was in the application portal for the FBI, you are, it's super secure and it sends you a one-time password that or a one-time authentication uh, credential to allow you to log in and upload your stuff and all that. Problem, 
the credential was generated client side and then uploaded to the system. And so they were able to re-engineer that so that they were able to get into the portal itself and use it to send emails. Now, the funny thing is, is that the uh, address that they used did not correspond to the security aspect of the FBI, which immediately made it look like it was spoofed or something like that, even though it did come from a legitimate source. It would be like um, if your abuse notification for Microsoft.com came from like marketing at Microsoft.com, even if it looks legitimate, you're probably going to be a little bit suspect anyway, but that's not the important story here. The important story is one that we have uh, reiterated many, 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 many times in the past, which is government agency information security is tantamount to garbage most of the time. I get that the FBI was doing their damnedest to try to keep this thing as secure as possible, and I really applaud their efforts, but you really need to go over to the Department of Homeland Security and take some tips because they are the only unit of the federal government that actually got an A grade on their information security. Could also have something to do with the fact that they're the only system that is the newest, and when I say newest, I mean newer than 20 or 30 or 40 years old. Um, they've got to get a better handle on this um like you know, and i i've said it many times in the past i said it many times at security field day going back to the famous quote from the ira um you have to be lucky every day we only have to be lucky once and that's where this basically came in because who would have thought to look for that credential stuffing exploit i guarantee you it'll be fixed here it'll be fixed at the cia and everywhere else but that just goes to show you that you've really got to be thinking on top of your game um Threat hunting is not something that you just kind of go, oh, well, I wonder how people can break in. Um, you know, tunneling into a bank vault is threat hunting. Think outside that box. So um, kudos to the FBI for getting a hold of it. And uh, also big thanks to Brian Krebs for um, not having a botnet on his forehead. Tom, right. I do have to jump in with one more thing. I want to correct myself. Pom Pom Purin is, of course, a Hello Kitty character, not a Pokemon character. I it's apologize. It's era. very important that we make sure that we get our Japanese cultural references correct on this show because, you know, uh, our, our fans will definitely want to correct us in the comments. So uh, so thank you for that. Um, we'll make sure that we get the right graphic up with the Hello Kitty as opposed to the Pokemon. Um, last week, Stephen, uh, we had an IPO happen uh, because backup giant Backblaze did debut on the NASDAQ. Um, it was a their big IPO, but it was kind of interesting because we've been talking a lot about the world of unicorn companies that have billion dollar valuations and and all these kinds of things. And, and Backblaze kind of made a little drip in the pond. Now, I mean, when they say that compared to the other companies, because Backblaze still had sales of $16 million last quarter and the IPO only raised about $100 million. But it was actually kind of interesting that the share price went um live at about uh, i think it was between 15 and 16 dollars per share and immediately shot up and uh, on monday it hit a high of 28 dollars per share before it closed around 25 which means that backblaze actually made a lot of money off the ipo and it valued their company quite highly because the investors seem to think that there's something there um, and it's not like a meme stock where you're buying it constantly and trying to drive the price up this looks like legitimate investors wanting to invest in the company Steven, does that mean that the investors that are looking at the stock actually care more about making money than hitching their wagon to a unicorn? I sure as heck hope so. Uh, Backblaze is such a great story. This is a story of a group of people who got together to make a product. They've stayed together. They've stayed true to their mission. They've continually improved the product. They've offered great service that customers love. I mean, I can't say enough good things about Backblaze as a company. 
And to see them have a successful, but yet typically modest IPO is just, you know, awesome guys. Um, you know, go have some uh, fresh homemade bread and butter uh, for that one. Uh, I know it's bread and butter day. Um, the one thing I'll point out, okay, so uh, Backblaze is not the sexiest Silicon Valley um, company. They're certainly not a company that's going to go out there and be like, we're a unicorn, we're a unicorn. But guess what? As of right now, when we're recording, their market cap is $986 million. You know what that means? That means <laughs> you guys are a unicorn. Um, nice job. And, and seriously, they're a unicorn who became a unicorn by doing something pretty old fashioned, which is making a product, selling it to customers, improving it, getting revenue, you know, you know, things that companies used to do instead of just building a company to sell. So uh, I love it. Uh, way to go, guys. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get in on the IPO, but uh, I kind of wish I had, but uh, there we go. Um, anyway, Backblaze is a public company. B-L-Z-E uh, is their symbol and uh, they're looking good. All right, Tom. Um, one of the things that happens with Gestalt IT is we get some advanced briefings from companies. And um, I got a briefing last week from NVIDIA on what they were going to announce at Supercomputing. Uh, and uh, of course, they did. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, NVIDIA is having great success in the uh, supercomputing uh, space historically, uh, powering you know over 140 of the uh, top 500 supercomputers. But of course, NVIDIA recently bought Mellanox, and their supercomputing announcement focused on networking hardware. So the new Quantum 2 platform uses uh, 400 gigabit transactions uh, using InfiniBand. Um, they've got a switch, they've got their ConnectX 7 NIC, and of course the Bluefield 3 DPUs. Uh, we don't hear as much about InfiniBand, uh, but you know that was a big part of the Mellanox acquisition. And of course, it's a big reason that they're in so many of those supercomputers for something other than GPUs. Uh, this combination of switch and DPU promises three times as much performance as the previous Quantum One platform. How does this look from your perspective in networking, Tom? Well, with due deference to Bob Metcalf, um, who is a, a brilliant human being, the future of the internet in the future of networking is not always going to be called Ethernet. Um, InfiniBand does have a place in the data center specifically. Now, for those of you out there who are not 100% familiar with InfiniBand, let me give you uh, the short, short version. They are a low latency networking system. They don't have a network stack. They don't interface with the operating system. Everything happens in the hardware. It's their bread and butter, so to say. Um, so all of the communications happens between the NICs and it's fast, but it's not fast in the traditional sense that you might think of fast. You know why? Because the number on the front of the faceplate isn't as big as the number on the ethernet faceplate. So one of the, the key differentiators between traditional InfiniBand and the previous um, Ethernet is that Ethernet is faster. Um, all gas, no brakes, as to say, because it has to be faster to overcome the limitations of having this big giant network stack and all of these standards that it has to interface with. So a 200 gigabit InfiniBand connection was just about as fast as a 400 gigabit Ethernet connection. Well, guess what? Now you have 400 gigabit InfiniBand. So that means you've got it even faster. Here's why putting the Bluefield uh, system in the NICs is super important. The reason why you're able to do this is because you're essentially offloading all the networking 
capacity into the NIC itself. So InfiniBand NICs had to be smarter to begin with. Well, all of the companies making DPUs and IPUs and whatever you want to call them finally caught up to that by saying, well, let's just slug a whole bunch of ARM cores into these NICs and offload as much as we can from the CPU, which should increase speed or at least reduce latency a little bit. But there's only so far you can go with that because you've still got to deal with a massive overhead that is Ethernet. Well, InfiniBand said, all right, well, we'll just make our stuff faster. So that's like the difference between a Bugatti Veyron and a bullet train. No matter how fast the Veyron goes, there's still a whole bunch of things it has to deal with, like roads. A bullet train can just keep going faster because it doesn't have to deal with that kind of stuff. And that ultimately is why this is a huge win for the data center. Because it used to be that the people who are making these low latency Ethernets, or I'm sorry, these Ethernet switches for disaggregated networks, were trying to aim at making them as fast as possible to overcome that low latency problem. Whereas InfiniBand was selling against, oh, well, our number isn't as big as theirs, but when you actually measure it, we're pretty equal. Now they can say, we're just as fast as everybody else. You should totally give us a try. And oh, by the way, if you're already leveraging a whole bunch of stuff that you're using from NVIDIA, like DACA, which is their programming language for these DPUs, it all works in InfiniBand now too. Hmm. I think that has a lot of ramifications for the future for people who are going to start building these data centers that are based on a lot of these technologies. And I think that maybe that's NVIDIA's play here is that they're trying to make sure that they can unify that stack as much as possible so that you only have to learn one or two programming languages to be able to interface with it and you don't have to worry about all the other overhead. So props to NVIDIA for coming out with this and I'm kind of interested to see where it goes, especially as some of the computing systems that we're getting into need more and more and more horsepower. All right, Stephen, um, one of the other updates and briefings that we got this week uh, was from a company that we are very familiar with, Store One. Um, they're going to be jumping into the backup market, and they just announced that they have a backup storage offering called S1 Backup, which works with some of our popular software friends like Commvault and Rubrik and Veeam, and it provides immutability against ransomware and rapid recovery to Flash. Stephen, you're Mr. Storage. What did you think of this announcement? Well, yeah, this was another one a case where we got a, a, a pre preview from a company that we're fairly familiar with. Uh, we've seen Store One at uh, Tech Field Day in the past, and, um, and many of the folks over there, including uh, George Crump, who briefed us, are old friends of the crew. Um, but uh, you know that doesn't mean that we're going to go easy on them. That said, this is a great announcement. So <laughs> here's the thing: um, it's really hard to put together a competitive storage platform. Um, storage is way harder to do than you would think it was. And frankly, um, most storage people are not gonna trust a platform that doesn't have some serious legs under it. In fact, um, I, a few years back at, uh, at Storage Field Day was quoted as uh, Stephen's Law, which is no one can use a storage system in production unless it's been around for five years. So um, I think that that's actually a, um, a pretty uh, accurate statement. And that said, uh, Store One has been around longer than that. But even so, uh, putting a system into primary uh, use as your primary storage system, well, that takes some faith, but it takes less faith to put it into production as a backup system. So wisely, uh, Store One has been able to transform uh, what was a uh, innovative primary storage system into a pretty competitive backup platform. They've created something that's compatible with a, some of the leading uh, backup solutions, including Veeam and Commvault, who we're very familiar with. 
uh, rubric and of course Haiku, which is a one you may not know, but they've got a pretty good install base as well. And uh, they've put together a system that actually does a really nice job as secondary storage. In fact, some of the things that they've just announced are pretty competitive. We've, uh, we've talked here about uh, ransomware and immutability and so on. And that's what they're talking about with store one. So the idea is you put your stuff on it, uh, they can have an immutability flag set, which is really important because a lot of these backup systems actually use the same kind of storage protocols, SMB and NFS, that you would use with any other uh, storage server. And the ransomware authors are wise to that. And so they look for SMB shares and NFS shares and wipe those too. So by having an immutability flag here in the system, which is something that a few companies are doing now, um, you're able to protect your data from that uh, in the event of ransomware, which is, you know, thumbs up there. Another thing they're doing is uh, their system has some unique capabilities, uh, one of which is um, the ability to do lots of snapshots. And I don't mean just like, you know, oh, well, you know, ZFS, I can do snapshots. No, no, no. We're talking like a snapshot every 30 seconds and keeping them for like months online. So you've got literally tens of thousands of snapshots kicking around. Uh, that also helps to prevent ransomware because, of course, you can go back to just before they hit and, um, and recover that. And uh, most systems have trouble. In fact, most storage systems will step over their own feet if you've got that many snapshots that frequently. But one of the things they engineered into store one is that it can do this. So that's pretty cool. And then a third thing they're doing is they're, um, they've got a flash tier um, as well as disk, and they're able to... Uh, basically restore to that flash tier and then present that as a storage system. So uh, effectively a system that gets hit by ransomware, you can recover to the store one system. You can retarget your application to the store one system. You can get back up and running on this all flash tier, and then you can recover the data to your production storage. But of course, all of this is a Trojan horse. And here's the secret. What store one really wants you to do is they want you to say, wow, this storage system isn't bad. I think I'll buy one for my primary. So that's what they're really after. Uh, of course, I'm sure they wouldn't mind selling a gajillion of these things into the backup market too. So anyway, it's, it's honestly looks like a good solution. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to see them moving into that uh, data protection space. All right, Stephen, we got a couple stories that we wanted to take a closer look at, uh, kind of related to some of the things that we've been talking about already. Um, the first one is we, you know, we talk about mergers a lot uh, on the show, and we usually talk about companies that are wanting to kind of merge to get ahead in the industry, but we usually don't see mergers that involve consortiums that define how an industry operates. And we do have one of those this week because uh, we saw a huge agreement between the groups that are trying to navigate the post-PCIe world. The Gen Z Consortium, which is the Open Systems Interconnect solution backed by AMD, Broadcom, Dell, and Micron, announced that they will be folding and all of their assets and knowledge will be absorbed into their competitor, Compute Express Link, also known as CXL. CXL is backed by Intel, Microsoft, and Cisco, as well as AMD and Dell. So I think a couple of those companies are kind of playing both sides. <clears throat> both Gen Z and CXL focus on low latency memory sharing protocols. And uh, the two parties have issued a magical letter of intent that allows uh, the Gen Z assets to be picked up by CXL, and it also allows them to collaborate on future releases. Stephen, it's a big deal for the storage and CPU memory access markets. What do you see coming out of this big merger between uh, Gen Z and CXL? Well, this is, uh, this is a great move. 
uh, in history of technology, we've seen a lot of cases where there will be competing standards for various things, you know, um, you know, the classic uh, token ring and ethernet, you know, uh, the uh, fiber channel and infinite band and all these other, you know, specific implementations, specific protocols. It's always good for the industry to have uh, different ideas and different consortiums working on different things. And then it's always good for the industry when those ideas come together and we're able to move forward with a unified approach. So as you mentioned, uh, Gen Z uh, dates back to 2016. The idea of Gen Z was basically what we now call disaggregated infrastructure. The idea was, well, what we need is a new system, a new solution, a new protocol that lets us have memory and other peripherals uh, addressed over a network on, on a remote system. So think rack scale architecture or even data, data center scale architecture. Uh, that's a very exciting move for the industry. Uh, it's also a very good move because one of the challenges when you're constructing servers and clusters is the amount of memory that can be addressed by a specific memory controller or CPU. Uh, we've talked about this before with non-uniform memory access and the fact that you end up with uh, you know, some memory that's directly attached to this CPU or this core and some memory that's a hop away or a couple hops away within the system. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about CXL on this because CXL, even though it's a much newer concept, um, it's actually in, out there. You can actually get CXL now somewhat. It's not 100%, uh, but you know, you can get some of the, the early CXL products, the 1.0 kind of products, and, uh, and maybe even the 1.1 products out there. Uh, the 2.0 is coming soon. Um, and what that allows you to do is have this stuff basically in a different rack bay. Um, you can access it over PCI Express network and so on. Um, CXL leverages newer technologies like uh, PCIe 5, uh, you know, DDR5, that sort of thing. Whereas you know, Gen Z, uh, when it was sort of uh, previewed over the last few years, has really been delayed by the, the wait for PCIe 4. Uh, a lot of the technology just kind of didn't come. Like I said, it was a more ambitious project because the idea was uh, fully disaggregated systems that would span like an, maybe an entire data center even, uh, but it never really happened. One of the reasons it didn't happen too is because there was a name missing from the vendors that signed on to the Gen Z consortium. And that name was Intel. Even though, as we've discussed, AMD and, and companies like that are, are, are definitely uh, ARM, you know, Broadcom, all these, they're definitely involved in the server market. Intel still is the big gorilla. And as we've discussed, Intel's dominance in the data center means that even though AMD supported PCIe 4 before Intel did, PCIe 4 didn't get much foothold. Now that Intel supports it, we're likely to see more, more uptake. Similarly, uh, Intel was first with PCIe 5, and uh, AMD's right there as well. And uh, PCIe 5 is starting to look like maybe we'll actually skip 4 and go directly to 5 because it's coming so quickly. All that is due to Intel's market strength. And that's also what happened here with Gen Z. So even companies like Cisco, Dell, and HPE couldn't make Gen Z a thing without Intel right there making Gen Z a thing. And similarly, the 
confusion over these two consortiums and these two concepts and these two standards for accessing remote memory, that wasn't enough to derail CXL because Intel, Cisco, Dell, HPE, they're all right there with CXL as well. And so, like I said, CXL, you can go out, you can buy systems today that can use CXL to some extent, and the future looks pretty bright. Well, with Gen Z not delivering much, with Gen Z sidelined by Intel's lack of support, with Gen Z still here, I mean, they were at supercomputing as well. Uh, they had a booth, they were showing what they're showing, but um, frankly, ever since last year when they signed a memorandum of understanding describing collaboration with CXL, the writing was on the wall. And now the writing is on the paper, as it were. Um, I expect uh, that the concepts that were in Gen Z and more importantly, the energy that was in Gen Z will now be absorbed into the CXL consortium. And all of this points to a future where we're gonna have disaggregated systems using PCIe 4 and 5. We're gonna have remote memory cards uh, it's very, very likely that a future rack scale system that you buy is going to have a CPU chassis, a memory chassis, an IO chassis, a storage chassis, that kind of thing. And they're all going to be able to be dynamically moved around as needed. Uh, GPUs, uh, NPUs, IPUs, APUs, all the PUs are going to be able to be accessed uh, in a rack scale fashion over PCI Express. And all of this is thanks to the efforts of the entire industry as you know, from Gen Z, from the CCIX work that they were doing through CXL. And uh, that's where we're going. And that's why this isn't a sad day for Gen Z. It's not a sad day for the industry. It's not one of those kind of, ha we win. It's a, yep, we're gonna, we're gonna move forward in this direction now. Yeah, that that pretty well sums it up, Stephen. The only thing I'll say from the networking side of the house is having having lived through the kinds of um, industry shifts where basically someone comes up with an idea for a standard and everybody else aligns against them. Um, it's good to kind of clear the table of that when you've got two competing standards that are very similar to each other. One, because like you said, it reduces confusion. But two, once you've solved that particular problem, it encourages people to go out and solve the problem in a slightly different way that may be better or more easily implementable or something like that. It, it gets us out of that rut of very rigid thinking. You know, it must look like this. It must include these features. Okay, well, we solved that problem. So let's move on to the next thing. And I will say that having Microsoft to be a part of the CXL consortium kind of speaks to that idea you said where you have a CPU rack and a memory rack and a DPU rack and, and, and components that fit into that disaggregated infrastructure. That's a huge boon for cloud because now when I need a rack of DPUs, I turn up a rack of DPUs. I don't have to be like, okay, well, I have to put in a rack of CPUs to run it and a rack of storage to boot it. Like it, it all just works for cloud scale. So, you know, here's hoping that this whole thing works out and uh, you know, good luck to all the parties involved. Cause I know that these processes can take a long time. Like you mentioned, the MOU came out last year and it took 18 months for us to get to the point we're at now. So we'll probably be covering this on the rundown, you know, in the months to come. Um, speaking of a story that seems to have been drawn out and taking a long time to cover, um, you've probably been following the saga of NVIDIA and its acquisition of ARM. You know, there have been several roadblocks so far, but our latest roadblock is wearing one of those cute bobby hats and uh, looks to be a pretty significant one because the UK has announced an in-depth investigation into the deal on the grounds of everyone's favorite boogeyman, national security. 
Yep, that's right. The UK Secretary of State released a statement that ARM technology is critical for national security, which makes ensuring accessibility to the intellectual property of ARM crucial as well. Now, you're probably wondering, where did this come from? Well, it all still boils down to this idea that the ARM processor is ubiquitous in just about everything you use, and so many devices are being used that are technically competitors to NVIDIA. So if NVIDIA has controlling interest in this technology, does that mean that they're going to restrict the ability for you to get features out of it? Does it mean they're just going to say, fine, we're going to jack the price up? And I know that CEO Jensen Wong has repeated over and over again that they're not going to do that. But we also know that people can change their minds sometimes. Now, Stephen, we're going to rewind the clock a little bit. You've been very bearish on this deal since the very, very beginning. And we actually have you on video of that. So we can go back and, and point to it and say, you know, Stephen was right. Does the national security probe from the UK government mean that you really were right all along? And this is just window dressing so that they can find a way to kill the deal. Yeah, the, the, the too, late, too long didn't read on this deal, in my opinion, is what I said back in August and September last year, which is this is not happening. The only way this deal happens is with an extreme watered down version of it, maybe a face saving version of it that would allow uh, yeah, Jensen Wang to get ARM, but only in, as part of a consortium of owners or as part of a IPO where NVIDIA, maybe NVIDIA, maybe the IPO of the thing and NVIDIA has a controlling share of the company or something like that. There is no way that the UK, that Europe, that China, that Japan, that Korea, and even the United States are going to let an, a wholesale acquisition happen of, of ARM. It, it's such a, it, it, it isn't a technology issue. It's a geopolitics issue. Mm -hmm. So look and at the acquisition of uh, Mellanox by NVIDIA, for example. Uh, here we had a uh, dominant power in GPUs with almost no uh, power in uh, networking and, and CPU buying a dominant company in networking. It faced some hurdles. It took a year of reviews. It was approved by everyone, including you know Israel and China and the European Union and the United States, and then the deal happened. Similarly, the, right now, there's a lot of talk about the uh, acquisition of uh, Xilinx by AMD. Again, I have, I have no doubt that that acquisition is going to happen. In fact, it's, I think it's going to happen real soon now because it's already passed American and, and European regulators and the China, uh, China has apparently uh, suggested that, that, that it should be approved. So the, the difference between these mergers and this arm acquisition is quite simply the strategy or the strategic nature of it. So having AMD acquire Xilinx gives uh, us a new competitor in networking. It gives AMD a, a foothold in the DPU market. Uh, it gives them a competitive project uh, product to Intel and FPGA. Uh, there's no reason that they wouldn't approve that. But ARM is a very different story. ARM is a company that designs and licenses chips. It doesn't actually produce them. It's not you know, an Intel. ARM, as you said, also is used in everything. And most importantly, let's, let's not put too fine a point on it, it's used in everything made in China. Literally every product you know, you, has an ARM CPU in it nowadays. And what that means is that from a strategic perspective, China can't have the IP, the fundamental IP in basically everything that uses electricity 
be in the hands of an American company because the American government has shown that they can do things. So I just don't see it happening. Similarly, and again, China hasn't even started looking at this merger from what I've heard. Now we look at the UK. The UK, not only did they not rubber stamp this, but they gave it a review and now they're giving it an even deeper review. Because if you're the UK government, do you want this fundamental IP to go to the US? Now the US and the UK aren't enemies, but uh, frankly, if I was the UK, I would want this to stay here. And, I, and, and, and maybe it's not just about jobs, it's about control. It's about having a, a seat at the table in high tech. Remember right now, Arm is owned by a Japanese company. If you're Japan, do you want to give up your seat at the table so that the United States can have another seat at the table in terms of, of high tech? And then there's China. Well, they've got all the seats on the other side of the table. If, if, if they are going to look at this and say, okay, so suddenly all, all the IP isn't, it's just not happening. And the sooner the industry kind of accepts that, I think, the sooner uh, we can all move forward. Like I said, the only way this happens is if there's some extremely watered down face-saving deal. And that I don't think, I don't know if NVIDIA would really want that. I mean, I'm not really sure why they want it anyway, but I'm not sure they want that. What do you think, Tom? So I think that when you look at the deal on a technology perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. And here's why. NVIDIA is a technology company deeply invested in ARM to run everything as we literally just talked about right up there in the story they're going to make a massive amount of investment in arm they are going to develop arm significantly so if all you're doing is looking at this on the face of it as a technology decision this should happen the problem is why it makes all the sense in the world as a technology decision because who currently owns all the ip for arm well that would be softbank you know the company that laid a giant egg with WeWork. The reason why they're selling this off is because they've got to get their books in order. They need cash. And it's funny that a Japanese company that owns the controlling interest in a UK business wants to sell it to the US to get some money. Boy, it's almost like the chickens are coming home to roost because allowing big portfolio companies to buy into all of these assets to manage them <clears throat> because nobody else can be bothered to do it will come back to bite you in the ass in the end. And I think that you're absolutely right about the Chinese perspective on this, but I think it's even a little bit more subtle than that. If it comes to this, the Chinese will step in and kill the deal, just dead. It won't even advance. They'll just say no and be done with it, but they don't wanna do that right now because they don't wanna raise the specter of a Chinese oversight group denying an acquisition because of the US interests because we've already seen animosity between the two. And we've even seen that animosity continuing in the current administration with um, you know, not lifting any of the sanctions and not lifting any of the orders that prohibit Chinese networking gear from being sold into US companies. So China would really love it if the UK would do everything they can to kill this deal so that they get to keep their hands clean and they don't have to be involved in this. The other reason why I think this is important is because this wouldn't be an issue if Brexit hadn't have happened, because the UK would not be unilaterally negotiating for this. They would have to be negotiating with the rest of the EU. And let's be fair, the EU isn't exactly known for 
rigorous reviews of these kinds of things. They've been rubber stamping stuff for a long time. So I think that this, for lack of a better term, is the hill that the UK is going to try to die on. They want to have control of their homegrown industries, even if they're owned by Japanese companies. And they want to show that they are somebody that you have to negotiate with, that you just can't brush aside and hope that you, you know, uh, well, we've got bigger fish to fry than the little island up north. But I think that that's ultimately going to be bad for ARM. And here's why. As you mentioned, the only way that this deal will get done is if ARM gets sold to somebody else that is not a wholly owned American company. But that also stifles the cash flow. Because why would NVIDIA want to invest heavily in a company that could potentially benefit their competitors? So what they'll do is they'll either take the IP and develop it themselves, or they will give some money to the company, but not as much as they could have. Does that mean that ARM will effectively kind of wither and die? No, because too many things rely on it. Will it be as good as it could have been? No, because why would I pay somebody to make something that competes against me? Competition is good for all markets, but everybody wants to own Monopoly. Um, ultimately, I, I, I'm kind of coming around to your idea of thinking on this, Stephen. As much as my pure technology heart wants to say that this deal should happen, this deal isn't going to happen. It definitely won't happen in the form that we see now, and I don't care how much money changes hands. The question is, a lot of these acquisitions that we're seeing are being driven by very high stock valuations. Essentially, companies are wanting to extract the value from their high stock prices and use those as leverage to invest in other markets. Can a decision be reached before that valuation normalizes? Because that's the one thing we know about all companies across the board, whether you're named Apple or Exxon or Enron, eventually your value will normalize. Maybe it normalizes to a value that is more appropriate to reflect what you're selling, or maybe you're Enron and the bubble goes pop. Now, I hope we don't ever have another one of those, but I think that eventually what's gonna happen is the values of these stocks are gonna come down and we're going to see that all of this money that people were using to bid on things isn't going to be there anymore. And we're going to have to do a lot of soul searching. So I don't know. I'm taking a more cautious wait and see approach, but I'm not going to be buying any champagne bottles for the announcement of this merger anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and from that point, I will say that um, there's an interesting, and now we're not financial analysts, but there's an interesting yeah. element to this thing. And that is that uh, an analyst a friend of mine uh, over at Wedbush, Matt Bryson, recently uh, made big news in the industry because he downgraded NVIDIA. Why would you downgrade NVIDIA? Well, the answer is that he downgraded NVIDIA because NVIDIA is currently trading at over 50x expected revenue. And there comes a time that even NVIDIA starts looking overpriced. I mean, this is, this is one of the most powerful, one of the best companies in the industry. They've got the, some of the best products. They've got like the best reputation. Eventually though, somebody's gonna look at them and be like, you know, that's great, but do I really think it's worth 50 times revenues or 60 times or 70 times revenues? And so frankly, that I think is gonna maybe be another factor here where eventually we're gonna to have to you know, sell stuff and make money. And it's gonna be awfully, awfully hard for even a team like NVIDIA to do that. Yeah. Well, Stephen, um, it's been an interesting look at the news this week, but we have some stuff coming up. Now, um, next week is gonna be pretty light because it is Thanksgiving week in the US. 
but the week after we have some big stuff coming up. What's the biggest thing that you've got on your calendar for the week after Thanksgiving? Well, the biggest thing in the industry is uh, Amazon's AWS reInvent, uh, and that's coming up November 29th through the December 2nd. Uh, I will not be there in person, but of course I will be watching very closely uh, and attending remotely. And the week after that is another exciting event that we love here at Gestalt IT, and that would be our inaugural Networking Field Day Service Provider event, which will be happening December 8th and 9th. That's Wednesday and Thursday of that week. Um, we've got a great lineup of companies and delegates that we're going to be bringing you. If you want to go over to the website, techfieldday.com, check that out. Um, you can get a peek at this. Uh, we've been asked many, many times to focus on the people who run the networks that you operate on the front side. Um, so we've we've uh, asked some folks to uh, take part in that, and I'm hoping that we're going to get some great discussions about some very interesting technologies. And thankfully, we have a lot of people that can explain it to me, because sometimes service provider networking is a bit of an alphabet soup. Um, speaking of next week, uh, because it is Thanksgiving here in the U.S., Stephen and I are going to take the week off from the rundown because we want to not only spend a little bit of time with our families, but we want you to spend some time with your families, too. And uh, the tech news won't stop, of course, but rest assured that we will be taking notes so that we will have an extra large show ready to go on December the 1st when the tryptophan wears off and uh, we are ready to uh, bring you some exciting news. Um, Stephen, uh, what are some things that people can check out that you've been working on uh, outside of the rundown? Well, certainly please do go to YouTube uh, slash Tech Field Day and check out the videos from Cloud Field Day. We had some great presentations there. Uh, also, we are actively uh, working on our Utilizing AI podcast. It's a weekly podcast every Tuesday. And uh, boy, I'm proud of some of the episodes we've had recently. So just go to utilizing-ai.com to see those. And I have a new episode of Conversations that'll be premiering tomorrow on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. I'd love for you to take a listen and tell me what you think and uh, leave a comment because I'm always interested to hear what you have to say about the topics that we pick. Um, speaking of the topics that we pick for the rundown, that's dictated by the industry because the news never stops. But rest assured, we will be back on December the 1st at 1230 Eastern Time with another great episode. We look forward to the opportunity to bring you some more exciting news. And uh, we hope that it will be an interesting holiday for you and your family. And if you are not in the U.S. and you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, take some time on Thursday to just have a little bit of fun and uh, maybe eat some stuffing. Uh, but for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and for our crew here at Gestalt IT, please have an amazing day, a wonderful week, and we will see you again in two weeks. <laughs>